The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by Brian Murray and Scott Holmes of Deadstick Radio. Scott Holmes has been flying since before he could drive. Starting in the Air Cadet program and finishing his PPL in high school, Scott soon set his sights on learning to fly aerobatic aircraft while studying mechanical engineering at the University of Alberta. Following graduation and always looking for the next challenge, Scott discovered air racing, a sport that requires engineering, aircraft construction, and high-performance flying to be successful. Scott now races in the Formula One class at the Reno Air Races and globally in the Air Race One World Series. He also now leads a team developing electric-powered display and racing aircraft. On top of this, Scott is finishing construction of a new, unique racing aircraft designed to attempt multiple world speed, altitude, and distance records. Brian Murray has always had aviation in his blood. He started his aviation journey in flight simulators as a kid, but moved on to RC aircraft as soon as he was old enough. Brian learned to fly gliders and became the youngest president of the Edmonton Soaring Club at age 26. After conquering the unpowered aviation world, he moved on to powered aircraft and eventually went on to purchase a Lake Buccaneer amphibious airplane. Brian's career has been marked by an entrepreneurial drive and a desire to leave aviation better than he found it. He was the first employee and director of IT of Aurora Cannabis and left it when it was the largest cannabis company in the world. He now hosts two podcasts, and a YouTube channel that focuses on aviation technology and amphibious adventures. Brian has also written several successful mobile apps, including a glider navigation and optimization app. I could not be more excited to have both of them joining me today. Welcome, Brian and Scott. Hey, how's it going? It's going hey. great. How are you? We're, we're pretty good. Uh, we're, we're just recording out of the hangar here where we store our planes. So Yeah, you might hear some uh, airplanes in the background once in a while, but I guess that's par for the course on an aviation podcast. There's a lot of worse things you could hear in the background for an aviation podcast. Kind of like music to me. Yeah. We also have another very special guest joining us today, Cameron Bokoff. Hello. It's my it's my first one. Finally stepping out from behind the editing desk. Yeah, you don't just have to listen to all of us in post. Yeah, now I have to listen to myself and get over my own voice. It's always the tricky part. All that to say, Brian and Scott, how did you get your start in aviation? I, uh, I started in 2006. Uh, well, actually before that, like 2004, I was like 14 or 12 or something and kind of wanted to be a fighter pilot. I was playing this fighter pilot video game. And I thought that'd be kind of fun. So I uh, went down the street and got in touch with the local air cadet uh, squadron in my area and got started there right away. Worked my way up through there. Uh, worked pretty hard as hard as I could. Uh, learned a lot in the process. Grew up a bunch in the process. Uh, ended up earning a scholarship for my glider pilot license in 06, private pilot license in 2007, and then that kind of took me to the end of high school. And then after that, I guess you could say I was uh, part of the community. What about you, Brian? Well, for me, it was uh, it, it really, I would say, started uh, back with my grandfather. He, uh, he flew Spitfires in World War II. Uh, specifically was flying the um, uh, the spy plane Spitfires. If you've ever seen the documentary about um, 3D um, spy planes where they're basically taking multiple photos and making these 3D images uh, back in World War II, 
uh, that's basically what he was doing. And uh, he was also training a bunch of other uh, students and stuff. So I kind of got the, the bug from that. Um, my father never learned to fly himself at all, but we did have uh, sort of radio controlled airplanes around. Um, my dad had tried to learn to fly them, but had never really, really taken too much of an interest in it. So uh, when I suddenly, when I was kind of in my mid, uh, I want to say mid teens, I started, uh, started to really bite onto that. It was kind of the only thing affordable to me at the time was to fly remote controlled airplanes. I'd been flying simulators and stuff like that, and they were a lot of fun, but I wanted to get it into real aviation. Uh, after that, I, I didn't do a whole lot until, uh, until after college uh, when I went and um, started to learn to fly gliders. Uh, I had actually heard of a, an event that was happening. They were doing a 150th anniversary event at their, uh, at their uh, soaring club, and I decided to just kind of go and show up and, and see what it was like. And from there, it was, uh, it was pretty much love at first sight. I was absolutely became obsessed with it. And, uh, and after a couple of years of that, um, I'd done a whole bunch of flying at that point. They, uh, they eventually elected me uh, the president of the soaring club. And I was uh, president for about three years out there. Mm -hmm. And that's, and effectively that's where me and Scott actually met is, uh, is out there at the soaring club, just kind of flying together. And, uh, and after that, it's pretty much just uh, kind of onward, uh, onwards and upwards. I uh, ended up getting a power pilot license, a, a you know, PPL, and uh, eventually bought myself a Lake Buccaneer. Yeah, and I think that was about what year was that? About two thousand ten ish. Yes, yeah, some like that. I I started the soaring club, and uh, it would have been July first, two thousand and seven, is when I started there. Yeah, and then I met you in probably oh nine twenty ten when you were the president. Yeah, and I think you wrote the software for managing their their um, gliding records. Yeah, their whole books. Exactly. Yeah, the whole operation was being done manually on paper at the time. And, uh, and, uh, there was another guy who was kind of throwing something together in Excel. And I'm like, well, why don't we make this, you know, much better, much more professional because, uh, the, uh, the accountant was having to go out there and download all the software every day. And I'm like, well, why don't I write some software that pushes it to the cloud and then everyone can get access to their logbooks. And, uh, it was, it was very, very cutting edge for its time. And, uh, they probably still use it. <laughs> <laughs> they probably they probably would be yeah that was like 10 years ago yeah yeah that was uh so uh, from there i, I actually um as also at the soaring club i uh i wrote an app for um for gliding so in in gliding figuring out your your maximum glide distance and your uh your best your best glide distance and stuff that's really kind of complicated and and, and troublesome i actually ended up writing an app to do the full navigation for uh for gliders whether it was best glide or or just general navigation in there so i sold that on the app store that was god that would have been, been about the same time because it was uh just just when the iphone was first released and just just released their uh their app capabilities yeah how do you guys compare because scott went through the air cadet gliding program and you went through civilian do you guys find that there's like a a big difference in background knowledge so i i kind of saw both sides of it where Brian never really got to experience the cadet side of things. So the cadet program is set up to maximize the number of licenses coming out of their, their course every year. But um, in exchange, they minimize the depth of instruction to where um, when a new pri or glider pilot license comes out of the program, or a new glider pilot, I should say, they know very little to almost nothing, just enough to pass the 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 license uh, exam and there's I think there's a written test and a flight test uh, and they do the flight test in the cadet program and so the cadet program basically teaches the same flight every time it does not teach soaring it does not teach flying away from the field it does not teach outlandings or landing in farmers fields 
All it is, is you take off, you fly to 2000 feet, you release, and you descend immediately, no soaring, no climbing in altitude. That's it. Um, so all these new 16 year old glider pilots know only that. So to show up at a, at a cadet civilian gliding center, um, they're, they're really at a disadvantage. So right after I finished that summer, I went to SOSA, Southern Ontario Storing Association, and they had a junior soaring camp. Um, that's, I think it was the summer after I finished. I can't remember now. Um, but there, uh, they, they, they basically put on very reduced rates, like cost for renting the gliders and so on. And they give you one week of hard gliding instruction to convert you over to the civilian world and bring your skills up to the civilian standard. So then right after that was over, I then went to Edmonton Soaring Club that fall, because I think that was, that was like late August or something. I went to the Soaring Club that fall, and that's where I started um, soaring at Edmonton Soaring Club with Brian. Yeah. So it took a solid week of flying all day, every day, to learn the skills to fly civilian. Yeah. Yeah. And I can definitely uh, um, uh, echo what Scott said there. Uh, specifically at the Soaring Club, we saw several cadets uh, come in just over that period of time. And because of Scott's experience, we actually set up a very similar program out here at, uh, at the Edmonton Soaring Club as well uh, to bring in those cadets because we, we definitely found uh, exactly as Scott says, where they would come in and they could barely fly. Um, they, you know, they could get in a plane and fly it safely. But uh, if you ask them to soar or, or, or make, you know, really good decisions, they just weren't doing that. So we wanted to really bring them up to that same standard. And that's what we did our, our, our course as well. So it was a lot, a lot because of Scott and uh, some other cadets experience from the, from the area that we actually started that, that same exact program. Now of the four of us on the call, I'm the only one, I guess, that does not have a gliding license. Do you find that there is a, what, I guess, rather, what are the challenges someone that has a powered license and has only flown powered aircraft who then goes to do a gliding license. What are the challenges that they really face aside from the obvious of not having an engine anymore? It's uh, it's going to be energy management, I think is the big one. Um, figuring out uh, in a power plane, you need, if you need to get more glide distance, you just kind of throw in a bit more throttle. Whereas in a glider, you are stuck. This is, this is your one landing and your only landing and do not undershoot it. You can safely kind of overshoot it a bit because you have, you have spoilers, but you have one shot at uh, at that landing, and uh, and even just dealing in the air, uh, we would see pilots get uh, new pilots uh, who were more power pilots come out to the soaring club. They'd get out beyond glide distance, and um, they wouldn't realize they were beyond glide distance. And you, fortunately, they were usually able to get back uh, into into some thermals and, and come back. But uh, there was definitely times we we found people way beyond where they should have been. Um, given their experience levels. So I think energy management is kind of the, the big one because obviously that's what you're doing in gliding is you're, you're giving yourself energy to climb. You're giving yourself energy by climbing and then you're expending that energy coming back down and getting to where you need to be. Yeah, if you talk uh, engineering terms, um, aircraft fly. Um, so energy is basically potential energy, uh, which is how high you are, plus your kinetic energy, which is how fast you are. And you can convert one for the other. And at all times in the flight, you are losing energy through drag. And then powered aircraft add energy back in through the combustion of fossil fuel, which becomes propeller thrust. So with glider or so with power airplanes, typically we fly at an energy deficient state where we can always add in a little bit more um, thrust or a little bit more throttle if you're, say, low on approach. Um, if you're high on approach, it's much more difficult to deal with than if you're low in a power airplane. 
In a glider airplane, it's the opposite, where you're always in an excess energy state, and it's much easier to bleed energy or remove that energy through the deployment of spoilers than it is to add the energy back. So it's a, it's a totally different way of thinking is the way to, is the way to see it. Yeah. Uh, I remember the big thing coming out of the glider program being actually either the glider or the power program with the cadets being, yeah, really low on experience. And I did civilian gliding for a little bit in Hawkesbury and that mm -hmm. was, that was eye opening. And then the same thing, you get to power and you have the iron thermal on your side and everything's, everything's just backwards. Yeah. Yeah, it takes a while to, to convert one way or the other, but it's funny once you, I think that gliding gives pilots better stick and rudder skills and energy management skills. And then when they end up in a situation uh, or in a, say a mayday situation with a, a dead motor or something, um, it, it produces better pilots when they have sailplane flying abilities. Um, sailplanes in general are very easy to fly. Most people, most experienced people can fly them with one hand behind their back just due to stability reasons. Um, they fly so slow. It's, it's actually really relaxing. Like, I think I'm going to retire on soaring. <laughs> but um, with power planes, it's totally different. However, a lot of the skills that, that sailplanes teach are not taught in the private world or in the, in the, the Cessna world. So it's, yeah. I think there's a big advantage to, to doing gliding, um, even if it's just enough to get your glider license and stopping there. That's a big advantage. The, the other thing that gliding te teaches, I think, is feet skills. Because most Cessna pilots coming out of uh, the typical flight school have no feet. Like, they don't know how to use their feet at all. So that's a huge disadvantage getting into, say, a tailwheel airplane or um, any other higher-performance airplane that actually needs a rudder. Why did you guys want to start podcasting together? Oh, well, here's the thing. So we were, at this point, we were racing. Um, so Brian, Brian's on, uh, my race team, uh, as well. Uh, he, he's been all over the world, I guess, racing and having fun and meeting cool people. Um, we are at this weird point when we were in, in, um, uh, China and Wuhan actually, um, where we, we had all these cool people standing around with these crazy stories and nobody had told them yet. Yeah. So we figured, well, okay, let's try this podcast thing. See if we can get some of these stories out there. Um, see if we can, uh, um, show people kind of the fun side of aviation that's not really being told. We found most aviation podcasts, like I didn't know of any really good aviation podcasts out there at the time. Most of them were like recaps on what happened at Oshkosh and, uh, you know, talking about weather or, or Training some news podcasts. events. Yeah, exactly. Um, some political thing, but none of it really sparked my interest. Um, yet we had, we, we were standing there with this guy that, I think he had what 15 dead sticks in his little mini jet <laughs> and nobody knew the story. So it was, that was the BD five, right? Yeah. Yeah. The BD five. Yeah. yeah we, we were <laughs> just happened to stumble across this guy and it's uh, it's one of my favorite episodes we've done so far. Uh, he had just come from absolutely nothing and, uh, and got to, what was he a training pilot with Qatar airlines <laughs> and then goes and buys himself a BD five jet. And is just, they're paying for paying to fly him all over the world and, and fly that jet in air shows. And, uh, and he had never, he'd never interviewed anything before. He'd never been even interviewed on a radio station or any of that. And suddenly we, these two guys were like, Hey, yeah, come over to our hotel room. We've got a couple microphones. Let's talk about it. And, uh, and on he did. And that's just kind of led way into so many other episodes where we've, we've stumbled across some, uh, some really incredible people, some really incredible stories, kind of at the same level 
um, uh, of story where we're able to just kind of talk to these people. And uh, some of the guys, uh, they, they come they come to us with, uh, they got PowerPoint presentations that they've given out a dozen times. And we just go, why don't we just talk about it? Let's throw the PowerPoint slides away. Let's just have a chat. And uh, we end up getting much, much more interesting information from them and, and uh, a kind of much better story from them. So we really kind of like the podcast format and, uh, and the style of it. And we asked some people that, that you think would for sure say no. And they say yes. Yeah, we uh, kind of it's kind of fun that way. One of our latest episodes is uh, is a guy who has been quite famous in aviation for turning down everybody else. And uh, I think Scott, you called out to him one day or something, and and the guy basically said, uh, is basically said no. And Scott just goes, "Well, I'm an air racer." And he goes, "Okay, I'll do it." So, <laughs> so we're the only person I think that's ever interviewed him. Yep, it worked out pretty well. I I find too that if you're if you're kind of part of the community. And um, you're, you're trying, you're putting yourself out there and taking some risk here and there, whether it's design, financial, um, you know, safety in general, whatever, um, trying to do great things in aviation, then people are more willing to say yes to come on the show than um, uh, just like some, some um, news company like down the street. That, that's the big thing, I think. Yeah. Being in the community, that, that's what really opens the door, I find. Yeah. We, we have people that, that are interested in doing podcasts here with us that said no to all of the news organizations that asked them, but are willing to do it with us. There's a lot of very, very interesting stories in the racing world, people setting world speed records, altitude records, distance records, putting it on the line, um, crashing. Um, that one guy that Brian mentioned had the prop come off. Actually, the prop threw a blade at 50 feet in a race, uh, and it threw the engine out of the airplane as well. Um, yeah, and it turns out he knows Art Scholl very well. Before Art Scholl died, he used to fly with Art Scholl every day, who's one of the, the world's most famous airshow performers. Uh, in fact, ICAST, the International Council of Airshows, has an Art Scholl Award for Showmanship every year, which is basically the most prestigious award for any airshow performer. Um, so the, the community is so well interconnected when you kind of get into the, the really high-end aviation, uh, you know, the people that really risk it all um, to do great things. Um, the community is so small uh, and so tight knit, it's fairly easy to kind of network and go from one to the other, to the other, to the other, and try and get some of these stories out here. And, and, and I, one thing that I'm starting to notice is with people actually starting to listen now is um, if, if just one person can listen to an episode and hear something that might one day save their life in emergency, then everything we just did was worth it. Yeah. And, and we're starting to get to the point now, I think, where we've got enough content out there and enough good learning opportunities that uh, I think the value is starting to to show itself. Yeah. yeah. Not just for entertainment reasons either. I know the AOPA's Never Again podcast does the same thing where it's real pilot stories shared in about a 10-minute period, really just trying to focus on sort of where someone uh, maybe went wrong, what they would have done differently, and just how they handled an emergency and then the suggestions that they'd have it really comes down to a matter of promoting safety as opposed to just putting out content. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's not just um, how to handle emergencies either. It's things like um, is ADSB safe or not? And, and Brian and I completely disagree on ADSB in, in many ways, not every way, <laughs> but many ways. Um, uh, and ADSB for people listening is, is uh, it's, it's basically a, a more digitized version of a transponder where, where your aircraft basically broadcasts its location to um, other aircraft and people on the ground which uh, Brian and I both agree is a major invasion of privacy. 
Um, but uh, we disagree on the value of the lookout and the value of ADSB in or receiving that information and showing it on a cockpit display. Where Brian is much more of the the belief that cockpit displays are valuable, and I'm much more of the belief that the old school lookout is more valuable than cockpit displays. Um, and that's just a differing opinion. Uh, neither of them is wrong, but it's just it's just different. But if we can teach people both sides of that and the 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 details behind that, I guess, and and why we feel that way, then they might be able to use their their eyes a little bit better at an airport an uncontrolled airport and maybe avoid a midair or something yeah so it's it's not just about maydays either maydays are fun and you know everybody likes to hear a good mayday story but it's not all just that yeah some of the things that i really like uh, on the podcast is we, we one of the things we try to do is get people off the ground is uh, a lot of people will you know see aviation and go well i can't really do that it's it's too expensive it's too whatever but there is a whole bunch of other opportunities out there for people in aviation they don't have to go you know the traditional route you know if, if you age out of cadets you, you still have other options as well that aren't going to break the bank you still can get out there and, and do this. And there is some things for people to do. So um, obviously uh, one, one of the most uh, common misconceptions in aviation is that, you know, the only thing you do once you get a license is you fly around for the hundred dollar hamburger, which is just not necessarily true. There's, there's great other things you can do. Uh, Scott's got a kit box that he can land out in the bush with, if he wants to. Um, I, I've got a plane I can land out, out on lakes and just sit there. I've got a fishing rod. I throw in the back of the, the plane and I go and land in a lake and just go and start, you know, fishing. It's, it's just these, these different things that people can do. You don't have to do this very small set of things. Um, racing is another great example. Scott's uh, Scott's a great example of that where, you know, you can go out and do, uh, you know, buy a race plane and go and actually start racing, um, which a lot of people don't even know. There's a lot of people in the aviation industry that don't even know Reno exists. They just think, you know, air racing is a thing of a bygone era. And you tell them, no, Reno happens every year. You just got to go. And uh, they're, they're quite surprised by that. So there's a lot of different types of things people can do out there and a lot of things that interest a lot of different people. And, uh, and kind of being able to share that, share these different stories, share how, how people can get out there. You can build your own airplane or, or whatnot. Um, and it, it should inspire. We're hoping to hope that inspires people to actually get out there and fly instead of just, you know, go get a license and then rent a Cessna every day. So, you know, you kind of hit on a sore spot for me. Um, most people I find when they, they finish the cadet program or, or age out or uh, finish their private license at the local flight school, they, um, they believe that their $150 per hour Cessna uh, is unaffordable after they finish their, their license at schooling. Well, what, they, what a lot of people are not taught and not exposed to is you don't have to pay somebody $100 an hour to work on your plane. You can buy an amateur build aircraft, which you can do all the work yourself, do your own annuals. Um, put in experimental avionics that cost one third what certified ones do for better performance. Um, and you can fly around for like $50 an hour with like a real aircraft. Like I paid 8,500 for, for my first airplane. Um, you can buy very perfectly safe, cheap $20,000 airplanes that have real motors in them, not ultralights or anything. Um, and, and fly them for, for dirt cheap. You can park them in a field, whatever. Uh, I have friends that just fly in the bush. That's like all they do. Their airplanes are all beat up from hitting trees and stumps and putting rocks through the belly, whatever. But uh, it's not all flying for $150 an hour Cessnas. Um, there's there's a lot of opportunity out there for people that do not make six figures. Yeah. 
it's very affordable right now. Um, it's not like what people think coming out of these schools we find. And that's one of the major missions that we have, I think, is not just um, teaching people how to survive a mayday or, you know, the value of ADSB, but it's also that flying is accessible and the community is incredible. And the, the, um, I guess the, um, the, how much it improve flying will improve your life more than most people understand. Um, most of my friends that fly and, and Brian and everybody else we know around here are, we live a higher, I think, quality of life than many people do through aviation. Yeah. And that's, that's not well told, I think right now. Yeah, exactly. We, we just, we're just finishing uh, COVID here. You know, we, we see the light at the end of the tunnel here and I know for, for myself, uh, Scott and, and a bunch of other people we fly with uh, it's really been kind of a, a kind of great reprieve for us. Other people are, are stuff, uh, you know, kind of stuck at home. Um, can't really go out anywhere. There's nothing really they can do. Whereas we can, we're still allowed to go get in our airplanes and go and fly and go and do something. And uh, without, you know, necessarily being around other people right in front of them. And uh, it, it's, it's been a, for, for myself, I know it's been a, a great reprieve from that, uh, the whole pandemic experience. Yeah. Almost nothing's changed in Alberta and in the United States. So we've been fortunate with aviation i'm almost sort of forgetting that we have like questions because i can just keep listening to you guys sort of go off and bounce off onto each other <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, it's good we we both we both definitely play off each other a bunch and as, he, as scott says we definitely uh we do disagree on a bunch of stuff you see some of our uh our arguments about uh things like electronic ignition <laughs> oh it's it's one thing after another um <laughs> And, and we, we come from very, so Brian comes from much more of a, a computer software electronics background than I come from. And I, my background's all wrenching and, you know, throwing it out, they're getting covered in oil. Um, so it's, it's very different. So the way Brian flies is much more electronic than the way I fly. Where I fly with like a couple of steam gauges and that's all I need, right? Don't even need a radio. The first, the first thing I installed when I bought my airplane is a full digital engine monitor and a mount for my iPad. Yeah. I've never installed an engine monitor ever. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, and Brian flies a lot off iPads where I don't, um, I just fly with a little Garmin GPS in the panel and follow the pink line kind of thing where Brian has all the inputs, he knows everything. And where I'm like, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the frequency is. So I'm flying around this airspace where Brian's like already on, he's going right through. No big deal. Yeah. I just tap. Okay. This is the, who I need to call. I need to call him. I just call him and I do it. Yeah. And, uh, saves me some time and gas. <laughs> yeah. So, and then. Um, also I've got, I've got a lot more background with, um, like engines and how to make them survive at high power and so on. Um, which comes from like a lot more wrenching and that kind of thing, changing engines. So not only do we disagree in a lot of things, but we can also build on each other, which is really good because like for the, for example, the other day, apparently, um, there, I learned the other day that there are back pay or there, there's like the backside of these maps are actually filed in four flight. Uh, and I was trying to find some frequencies to, I can't remember what I was doing, fly, fly over the city or something. And Brian's like, oh, if you go to um, the uh, options section of four flight and then go to um, uh, other section and then there they are. there's a whole bunch more information I didn't know about. But see, my, my four flight experience stops at figuring out how to press direct to where Brian's like got it all figured out. Yeah. And then on the other hand, when Brian has, um, say, mechanical problems with his airplane, I can help him try and figure some of those out as well and, and help him try and figure out if it's safe to fly again. Like, should he go take off? Should he take it apart and inspect? 
So yeah. I've got a little bit more background there. So it works well to, to work together. Yeah, I had a, a backfire here on my plane a couple of weeks ago and I, I just turned right, right, I settled it right back down on the ground and turned back around and sent Scott a text. Hey, can you come out and take a listen to this? This is, uh, I don't know what's going on. I've got all this digital electronic engine monitoring stuff, but it doesn't have the ears that Scott does. Yeah, but it's it's good to know in detail how to take these engines apart, how to put them back together and what fails and how it fails. And and in my opinion, most pilots that come out of these flying schools have never looked under the cowl. They know they've heard of a magneto, but they couldn't tell you where it is. No, I think flight schools nowadays, especially don't set up their pilots particularly well when it comes to actually understanding the how and the why of aircraft engines or really avionics or beyond anything just that you're evaluated on. I know one of Cameron's favorite games is to take students who are coming into the hangar and just point out different parts of the engine and say, what is that? And watch how they don't know. And they might be well into their commercial license at that point and might not be able to tell you what a certain piece is. <laughs> yeah. 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 They are. It's uh, a lot, of, a lot of flight schools spend uh, our, a lot of them are kind of targeted now at getting people into commercial flying and mm -hmm. specifically into, in towards airlines. And uh, for, for me, myself, I walked in that door and I actually picked my flight school. Um, uh, I actually picked my flight school specifically because the other ones I walked into, they, they all had suit and ties, like even the ramp guys, suit and ties. And I said, I don't want to have anything to do with this. These other ones. I walked into theirs. There was some guy wearing jeans and a t-shirt and he was pushing an airplane around. He's like, oh, crap, I got to push this thing around. And I don't have help. Hey, want to come and help me push this plane around? I said, this is, this is where I'm going for sure. And, uh, and uh, unfortunately, that was uh, a pretty good experience there. But um, even, even, even there at that flight school, still, I didn't get to learn a lot of the types of things that I really, really wish I'd, I'd been able to learn um, because they just didn't have that kind of uh, attitude of like, well, how many people are actually going to be buying their own airplane? If you're going to buy your own airplane, you know, kind of on your own at that point, they're not teaching that skill because let's face it, it it's, it's, not, it's not profitable for them to be teaching people to do that. It's more important for them to be teaching people um, how to get towards that airliner, uh, airliner um, uh, certificate. Uh, as, and uh, and it's, it does leave a lot of us kind of um, recreational pilots kind of out in the, out in the dark on our own. Uh, but, you know, as we've, we've been saying several times here, it's, getting into the community that's where we, we learn all that kind of stuff and that's where we get that kind of experience and that knowledge well that that, that community also um, teaches people how to fly airplanes at a much deeper level than somebody coming up the flight school route uh, and i know in airlines when i when i fly in the back of an airline i'd much rather have somebody that has that deeper knowledge and deeper experience with hands and feet skills than somebody who went straight from a 172 into a King Air and then a hundred hours later went into a 737 with 600 hours total. Yeah. Just to bring it back to racing for a second, in uh, 2019, there was supposed to be a demo race out in Edmonton. Uh, were you guys involved in that at all? Yeah, I, I set up the course layout in, in Villeneuve. Um, I, we, we've got it all designed. We've got a introduction or a, well, basically transport doesn't know how to, how to produce a, a, a racing SFOC special flight operations certificate yet. Um, they haven't done it since like 1992 or something like that. There was a race in Vancouver, but there's no documentation left on it. Um, and so what we're doing now is we're going to, we, we've actually pitched a step up program to racing where we're going to start putting planes on the course. Uh, we're actually pretty much ready to go right as COVID was hitting. 
um, we're going to start putting F1s on the course, on the F1 course, um, to kind of show transport what it looks like, and then step them through a whole syllabus of all the different flying aspects of a race. So that then they can then grant the SFOC and have it fully understood all the hazards of, of what happens in a race uh, so that they're not just granting kind of a blind SFOC on an idea. They can actually see it for themselves. And also the, the airport property managers can see it for themselves. The emergency response people can see it for themselves. And everybody knows exactly what it would look like at Villeneuve. And it would allow the pilots an opportunity to actually test the course. Uh, and make sure that there aren't any unknown hazards and make sure that, um, you know, all the media options work and that kind of thing. Um, so that was, that was going on right before COVID hit, um, COVID hit. And then we kind of just uh, shelved it for a while. We're talking about getting it going again, but, um, right now we've got so much going on. It's absolutely ridiculous here this summer. Yeah. And then we've got, we've got Reno coming up in September and then another race in Texas right after Reno, like a month later. Um, so between those two races, I've got an electric airplane project that's coming up this summer that, uh, I've, that could be full-time on it by itself. Brian's got a company that he's working on right now. So we're, we're pretty slammed, I guess. So yeah, hoping the, to get to Oshkosh and Reno and Texas. And it's just, yeah, it's, it scheduling is, is chaotic this year. It, obviously everything we tried to do last year, we're trying to fit into this year along with, you know, a secondary set of everything again. Yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm working till eleven every night. Like I'm not sleeping at all. I'm up early. It's just ridiculous right now. Yeah. But the opportunity is, is crazy. Like there's so much opportunity here right now in aviation. It's, it's a really cool combination of, uh, the industry changing because we've had a lot of retirements and that, that really big shortage is coming back, both for pilots and wrenches. Um, and then yeah, the community we're seeing, uh, a lot of experiment. Metals come up on uh, for sale. We're seeing a lot of old, older certified airplanes come up for sale, uh, especially tailwheel airplanes selling for next to nothing, because no one knows how to fly them. Yeah, it's true. So, it, for anyone who's and anyone who wants to take just a little bit more training and work on their feet, like we were talking earlier, there's there's a lot you can do. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's crazy right now. Yeah, there's a lot of planes. It it it, it kind of makes me a bit sad whenever I fly to these remote airports and you just see there's a plane sitting over tied down. Its straps are all completely frayed. The the glass is all frosted up. You can tell that plane hasn't left the ground in at least ten years. And it's sad seeing those planes just sitting there doing nothing. And when there's tons of kids out there who would love to, you know, not just kids but people in their kind of twenties or thirties that would love to fly these airplanes, but they're almost many, many of them are, are beyond salvage. So it's, it's kind of a sad experience. Uh, you know, you can't get a new airplane nowadays for less than like a half a million dollars if you want something certified or, you know, you're building it yourself if you want it for less than a hundred. And, uh, and um, it, it's, it's kind of a, a sad experience to, to see out there. Um, but uh, there is, there's definitely some opportunities out there. Yeah. It's uh, well, especially in sport aviation, I think there's, um, a ridiculous amount of opportunity right now. And it's not just in, in buying and, and operating these aircraft. There's development of new technology. Um, I think that, and we've talked about this in other podcasts, that manufacturing and transportation are the two uh, major industries that have the potential to improve people's lives the most. And aviation is part of that transportation. Um, you can start small. So, And what we're seeing with COVID right now is um, – people not wanting to fly on airlines. And there's kind of this big shift towards private aviation. 
Um, so, and, and then on top of that, there's this great big uh, injection of cash um, caused from the, the COVID economic response with, with our governments in North America, um, which, which actually helps the market. Um, we have friends that sell aircraft and uh, they're doing extremely well right now just buying and selling aircraft. So that there's there's a side of of our our community, I guess, in our industry, our industry, especially in sport aviation, that's absolutely on fire. And I don't see it going away anytime soon. I, th I think it's going to get better. Right now, too, we can still travel with um, private aircraft, especially at, right in the middle of COVID. We could fly anywhere in a private aircraft, yeah. like right across the border, no problem. So it it's really a a, a loophole, I guess, or a a big open kind of the wild west, I guess you could say where uh, most governments haven't touched it yet, which just means pure opportunity. Now with that, you've both gone through the process of purchasing aircraft, um, but for very different aircraft. Uh, notably, Brian, they, uh, your podcast covered the purchase of your Lake Amphib. Now, what led you both to choose the aircraft that you did? You want to go first? Yeah, I may as well. Uh, my plane, uh, I've always kind of loved the the idea of an aircraft that can do a lot more different types of missions. Um, I don't really care about going very fast. So I'm not really the kind of guy who's going to go out there and, and buy a Mooney or, or something. Uh, I want something that I can get somewhere and just kind of take my time to get there. But once I get there, I want it to be able to do a ton of different things. Obviously, I can't necessarily land on mountains or something, but I can land in a, in a lot of different types of places. I can land on on lakes and stuff. And I, I kind of like that um, that atmosphere of being able to just you know fly purely recreationally. And that's really what uh, what the lake is is really 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 suited for. Uh, a friend of mine, um, he was actually the guy who taught me to fly, taught me to actually fly gliders. He owned a the smaller version of it, the, the Colonial Skimmer, which there's not very many of them left. And uh, when I heard he had, he had owned one of those things, I started looking into them. I was just absolutely amazed by them. And uh, I decided that's the kind of airplane I want to fly. Uh, I want to fly something that, you know, I can go places, but I can I can land in, in interesting in interesting types of places. Uh, there's a few different types of uh, amphibious aircraft out there, and I just kind of was never really interested in some uh, some high wing uh, like a Cessna or something. They just didn't really didn't really interest me as much. Um, so uh, the lake it was. Yeah, and I'll um I'll tell you right now I will never buy a certified airplane if I'm there. <laughs> so I'm a I'm an engineer, mechanical engineer. Um, I love to build things. Um, composites are my thing. Uh, I know I can know my way around an engine. I know my way around welding and and that kind of thing and aircraft structures and. So uh, with those skills, uh, I quite enjoy designing, building, and testing aircraft, especially experimental ones, um, one-off designs, um, new modifications, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and F1 racing is exactly the class where that happens the most. We don't see that in the aerobatic world. We don't see that at the Red Bull Air Race. We don't see that um, in some of the other racing classes near as much. Most of the other racing classes are more about horsepower than they are about air, uh, airframe modifications. Um, F1 is by far the class that sees the most uh, airframe aerodynamic structures um, innovation year by year. Um, so that that's kind of what kind of led me to it. And then on top of that, F1 planes are, are fairly low cost and affordable. Um, O200s uh, made by Continental are very cheap. They're one of the cheapest aircraft engines you can buy right now, aside from, say, a two-stroke Rotax. Um, they're very well-known. They're very reliable. Um, I heard a rumor that you can run them for many hours without oil, and they'll keep running. <laughs> um, 
and they burn 40 to $50 an hour in gas. Uh, so for somebody that was just coming out of school, uh, out of university, didn't have a whole bunch of money working in um, uh, Fort McMurray up north, um, that was an airplane that I could afford. Um, F-1 planes are very small, so they're easy to store in hangars, which makes the hangar cost per month really cheap. Uh, the insurance, uh, this year I paid $180 for the year. <laughs> Can't get better than that. Some people are paying $3,500, $4,000 plus, um, particularly for retractable gear airplanes. Um, so overall, it was affordable, but it also allowed me to do what I love to do, which is um, design new modifications, build them, and so on, which uh, is also what led to the the new racer, which is uh, in progress right now in the shop. Yeah, I, I definitely like the idea of uh, of experimental aircraft. And unfortunately, when I was looking in the uh, the amphibious space to get a plane that was even remotely in the same category as the, as the Buccaneer uh, uh, in the experimental area, it was significantly more expensive. They're just really, once you, once you start talking about landing on water, they're all just very, very expensive airplanes. And, and, and the, the Buccaneer is surprisingly underpriced for what it actually is and what it offers compared to uh, stuff in its category. So yeah. if, if I could have had the option to get an experimental plane, I absolutely would have. Uh, it's it's kind of hamstrung me in a lot of different ways. I quite enjoy rubbing, um, buying new experimental avionics in Brian's face. <laughs> hey, I got this really cool radio that like has really good sound quality and everything. Oh, Brian, by the way, you can't install it. It's experimental. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, he's, he's like spent like whatever, how much money, like 1500 bucks on on some piece of equipment. And I would go and look, I'm like, oh, I'd like the, uh, the, the certified version. Of it. It's like seven grand. You're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, it's true. And then, that that's also a good point too is the the amphibious world um the the last great uh, amphibian that you found was a buccaneer which was built in the 70s and 80s yep nothing that can touch a buccaneer is around right now icon tried but their airplanes are worth what quarter million bucks 3 350 something like that yeah for for they kind of start around 350 to 400,000 dollars for uh for them and they don't have the same carrying capacity. They don't have the same speed. Yeah. Uh, they they're a little bit better. They're a little better on gas, and you can store them in your garage. But there is nothing about that airplane that's better than the Buccaneer, except for that. So, so as far as you're concerned, the Icon A5 is not necessarily the future of flying boats and amphib aircraft. It will be the Buccaneer. It will be the Renegade. It will be Lake aircraft. Uh, well, unfortunately, they're not making them anymore. So they are kind of they're unfortunately going to go in the way of history here. Uh, the Icon, I think, had a very, very good potential to be the future of amphibious air, airplanes. If they, had, if they had stuck to that cost of about $100,000, that would have been the airplane to get. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, the prices have just ballooned absolutely astronomically, and uh, unfortunately, it makes it not a very attractive option. Uh, if if they had cost, if they were costing $100,000 instead of $400,000, uh, that's probably what I would have bought. Yeah, the, the Icon had an opportunity. The problem is, is they price themselves in with like Ferraris and Lamborghinis um, with, with basically a toy. So the only people that could buy them were like professional sports players and, and very wealthy individuals. Um, and, and typically people like that don't have a lot of flight experience either, which is part of why we're seeing the accident rate that we're seeing. Um, but it, it's also much smaller than the Buccaneer and what, four to eight times the cost. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's well over four times the cost. You can only fit two people. You can't carry anywhere near as much cargo in it. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it just doesn't have the, the same kind of capabilities. No, and that's definitely the thing. The Icon is not necessarily uh, a more inherently dangerous aircraft. It's just that the total flight time of the individuals flying them 
is lower than that of maybe your average amphibious pilot. But particularly with the lake aircraft, I mean, most lake pilots don't consider themselves proficient on lake aircraft until they have a few hundred hours on type. So I guess, Brian, how do you balance trying to be proficient and learning and being a good, safe pilot while also still trying to be essentially a student pilot of sorts? Ask Brian what insurance required. Yeah, it was. uh, So my insurance required, uh, specifically, I had to have 25 hours with a very specific individual and that that included uh, 200 water landings and 50 land landings. So I did that over the course of six days uh, a couple of years ago in the fall. Now I've got that time and I feel I feel pretty proficient in it. It's if you're flying it uh, on land, it's or just regularly in the air. It, there's nothing really a whole lot different about the plane. The difference comes when it comes on on the water and uh you do have to spend a lot of time on that. So last year, I think I only went out about four times on the water. And mostly it's because I just didn't necessarily feel comfortable with that without getting a little bit more training. I found another local guy here who's going to do a bunch more training with me. And uh, especially because when I did my initial training in it, we did a whole lot of uh, kind of splashing goes to get that number of flights in. You have to do a lot of splashing goes. And unfortunately, that's the insurance requirement, which is not, um, not really uh, well thinking in my mind. Uh, anyone can do a splash and go on those planes. Literally, I could sh- I could show any I could show Scott how to do it, get it, give him a couple shots in it, and he could do splash and goes. Hey, I'm after, not a monkey. Well, after the second <laughs> or third flight, you could easily handle it, no problem. Um, but uh, to actually start doing uh, the actual full stop landings, that's where the danger comes in. And unfortunately, because the weather conditions weren't particularly conducive, and we had to get so many flights in, unfortunately, we didn't do enough. Uh, kind of full stop takeoffs and landings. And that's really where you need the the major experience in there. And especially on things like uh, dealing with um, if you hit an if you hit an, an errant wake, like a rogue wave coming along, that's where the real danger comes into the Buccaneer because of the their hull design. It's it's um, the Icon A5 is is better at suit better suited to handling those. Uh, there's been obviously a lot of advancements in hull design since then. But the Buccaneer can handle it too. You just have to know how to do it. And uh, that that that's where it comes down to the the training and experience and spending a lot of time with, uh, with a pilot who, who's, who's particularly experienced in that kind of, in that kind of flying. Yeah. That, that's what kills airplanes like the Buccaneer is people taking them out with not near enough experience or uh, currency uh, into environments with big waves and so on and yeah. getting themselves in trouble. And that's generally what happens to other aircraft that earn themselves a poor insurance reputation as well. Yeah. Including yeah, exactly. my kid Fox. One of the insurance uh, assessors that I've dealt with uh, has a list of all of the lakes still flying and is slowly crossing them off. Yeah. Um, that's that's the yeah. way they're going there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's entirely due to inexperience and people who don't get the training. Now, what are the future plans for Deadstick? Good question. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think the I think the way that um, I, Brian might be able to answer it better than I can, but I see. Deadstick evolving uh, with what's currently happening in aviation. And I think that back to when we started the podcast, we started it because of all these stories and experiences that other people were having that were not being told. Um, So that, that will continue and will evolve the podcast as necessary to follow those stories. Yeah. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah. Best way. Yeah, it's a pretty good way of saying it. Yeah, we want to evolve it with with the industry. So obviously, as aviation changes, uh, like five years ago, Trent Palmer didn't exist. And he has completely changed the way people do aviation content. Like five years ago, 
all the only aviation content you could really find out there is flight chops, which he's a great guy, but he's not, uh, not an inspiring, um, he doesn't inspire people to fly in the same way that Trent does. He's not an adventure storyteller. He's not an adventure storyteller. Exactly. And, uh, we kind of, we want to try and fill that gap in the, in the, um, podcasting world is, is fill that kind of aviation adventure type of, uh, of, of atmosphere and, and just bring in a lot more really interesting guests that are able to, uh, to, to share their experience and kind of share their inspiration and, and why they were, why they're doing this. Um, and, and effectively just evolve around as the, as the aviation industry changes, uh, and, and try to get, uh, try to really change the, the shift, the tides of, of aviation towards more people flying than, uh, than, than planes sitting around in, in, uh, in cornfields. <laughs> so. Awesome. Uh, one of our standard closeout questions we ask everyone, please share a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your flying lifetime or flying career. I have many. Yeah, that's a hard, hard one. I'll, I'll share a couple. I had a, a flight last year. We flew in a fort. We did an air tour with like 25 airplanes. I flew in a four ship formation with a turbine crop duster. Uh, a vintage Cessna and I can't remember who else was in it. Um, a, 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 well, basically probably about 150 miles in that four ship over multiple airports. And we made a very big difference in the community. Uh, we had people on the ground taking pictures. Hey, what's this? We had people in the air capturing us flying low. Hey, I saw you guys, that kind of thing. Um, and we had an incredible time doing it. Um, the, the other experience that might compare was um, at the Reno Air Races, I was racing um, in, I think I was in the bronze at the time. I think it was my rookie year. And uh, one of my mentors, my racing mentors, a guy named Philip Goforth, one of the best stick and rudder pilots I've ever seen, period. He could fly anything uh, way better than I would probably ever fly. Um, rescued this airplane called El Bandito. And he rescued Bandito out of, um, so the Buddy brothers, George and Bobby Buddy, are very famous F1 pilots. Uh, they've owned probably 40 F1 racers over the years. Um, they were uh, maybe, both brothers were at Reno that year, and they're probably late 90s. Um, very old at the time. And Phil got this airplane flying again like a couple weeks before Reno. It hadn't flown in probably 20 years. Uh, original motor and everything. And then got it in the bronze with me sandbagged it for uh, the whole week up until the bronze uh, uh, medal race and then snuck up on me for four or five laps and passed me at pylon five and six coming past home pylon on the last lap uh, and took the the bronze win from me uh, uh, and and had el bandito come first in that race and i think that was the last time uh, george and bobby buddy ever attended together at reno and uh, neither are with us anymore. Uh, but it was it was a very special moment to be part of that. And it, I was having the absolute time of my life in the cockpit, winning that race for seven and a half laps. Yeah, I, I think uh, so. I got a, a few, but some of them are, are not even where I've been flying. Um, going down to Wuhan, China was a was a ton of fun down there, <laughs> getting to meet all the the fun people and the just the the ridiculous experiences we had down there. Um, but, uh, one of my favorite experiences was, uh, back up at the soaring club. Um, I got to, so there was a soaring club up in cold Lake at the time. Uh, and they were, they were having a hard time getting kind of interest in getting people going. And, uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, general or whoever's up there 
gave them the the mandate that they had to get flying in that year otherwise they wouldn't be allowed to uh otherwise they had to basically close the 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 soaring club up there which was based on the base so we took a glider flew all the way up there and uh full aero tow all the way up there was like an hour and a half long flight hour and a half long aero tow it was it was not it was my second longest aero tow ever and we got to land on the air base. We, we weren't allowed to land on the main runways because they had like arrestor cables on there. But as we're coming into land, there's an, uh, an F-18 taking off right underneath us. And, uh, and we're just circling around and, and coming into land. And we spent the entire day on the base, you know, this, this militarized base. We had to call ahead and they would have shot us down if, uh, if we weren't pre-authorized. And, uh, and up we went and uh, spent the day uh, up there doing that. Um, so that was, uh, that was a ton of fun. Uh, uh, we did a few other kind of events like that. We went up to Beaver Lodge one day and I think I did, it was like 80 flights in a single day. Um, just constantly flying, just taking people, uh, we'd launch, take them up for a 10 minute flight land and then, and then, and then go from there. So those were, those kind of experiences were, were a ton of fun for me, uh, being able to get kind of access to these, these types of things that people don't normally get to do. Like how many people can say they got to land a glider in an active military base with F-18s moving around on the, on the field. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Want to go first? Yeah, so we're on uh, uh, Spotify, iTunes. Uh, we're on Facebook uh, at Dead Stick Radio. Yeah. What, what I miss? We got, uh, well, deadstickradio.com is, is probably the best place because uh, we've got links to all the different um, podcasting sites. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on uh, Instagram as well, although we don't really use Facebook and Instagram too much for Deadstick Radio. Uh, myself, I am uh, on Instagram. I'm uh, at In the Blue Yonder, and uh, I'm also on YouTube. Just search for my name, Brian Murray. I'm uh, I'm on there. I'm making a bunch more content. Yeah, I'm on uh, my personal social media. So my race team is uh, at Outlaw Air Racing on Facebook, and then my Instagram is at Holmes five forty H O L M E S five four zero. And uh, I, I tend to post uh, Instagram stories the most about various, uh, you know, uh, aviation adventures that might get me in trouble one day. So that's probably the best place to watch uh, what I'm up to. We will be sure to have the links in the episode description for our listeners. Brian Murray, Scott Holmes, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Thank you. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.